Welcome to this week's episode of Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. This week, I'm chuffed that I was able to speak to Bob Stanley from St. Etienne, the band who you might remember from singles like Only Love Can Break Your Heart, You're in a Bad Way, and albums like 1992's Fox Space Alpha, among many other releases, are back with a brand new record called I've Been Trying to Tell You. It's a real kind of COVID record, I guess, in a way, the way they made it. The trio of Bob, Peter Weeks, and Sarah Cracknell recorded all their various parts from separate corners of England. The album is comprised of a lot of samples that they collated from 1997 to 2001, a period that was sort of topped and tailed by Labour's UK election victory and the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers. I'm going to read from the bio now, which is something I rarely do, but I think it sort of contextualises what the album's about. Was the optimism of that era a lost golden age, or was it a period of naivety, delusion and folly? The collective folk memory of any period differs from the lived reality. I've Been Trying to Tell You is an album about memory, how it works, how it tricks you, and creates a dreamlike state. It also taps into the way we think of our youth, a sense of place, and where we come from. So Bob, of course, is a terrific writer. He talks about his life as a music journalist and how he came to write the pop culture brick that is very essential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, he's just finished a prequel to that. We also talk about the future of print, magazines, the Bee Gees, lots of interesting things. When I spoke to Bob, he was at home in Yorkshire. Here he is, Bob Stanley. Now, I, I just want to check with you, because I'm living in Australia, we all panic when we say exotic names of bands to make sure we get it right. I, I've been saying for years, St. Etienne. How do you say it? Uh, oh, you can say it any way you want. I mean, I say St. Etienne, which uh, I'm sure the French would probably throw up their hands yeah. in horror. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, say it any way you want. There's no, no right or wrong way of saying it. St. Etienne. Great. Brilliant. We'll, we'll stick with that. Yeah. Hey, uh, just kicking off, I, I I know we're going to get on well with this chat because I looked at your Twitter the other day and I saw that you found, I don't know where you found it, the photograph that Jane Asher signed for Paul McCartney the day she met him. And you put that up yeah, online. Yeah, I'd love to say I found that. It was, um, yeah, no, it was, it was someone else on Twitter found that. It was, uh, yeah, it was incredible. I didn't know that story. I mean, everyone knows about um, George meeting Patty on a set of Hard Days Night when she was doing his hair and playing with his hair, whatever she was doing. Uh, but I did not know that Paul got Jane Asher's autograph. <laughs> the other way around, was it the other way around? No, didn't Paul get Jane's autograph? Yeah, that, that's what was yeah, so yeah. strangely yeah. interesting about it, that uh, yeah. Paul is asking for Jane's autograph. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. A, a great little a, a document. Um, we should, obviously, I want to talk about your new record, Um first one in four years for the band. And it, it's fascinating. I've, I've listened to it, obviously, and enjoyed it. But reading about it um, beforehand, the fact that uh, it's about nostalgia, memory, and you talk in the, uh, the press release, at least, about that period, 1997 to 2001, where Tony Blair's elected as uh, Labor, uh, as Prime Minister, and then the Twin Towers come down. Um, that's, that's a big concept. What were you thinking? <laughs> what the hell were we thinking? Um, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's, there's, um, it, it mainly sprung out of other, other, other stuff that's being made at the moment. Um, uh, especially, you know, online in the last sort of 10 years or so, uh, there's a lot of, um, stuff that's, uh, music set to footage of like, you know, like shopping malls in Tokyo in the eighties. And it's like young people who were too young to remember it harking back to what they see as like a golden period in the same way that 
when I was growing up, people hark back to the fifties as a golden period and didn't uh, didn't ever reference, you know, like you know, people having nightmares about atomic bombs or anything. It was all yeah. about it was just Greece and happy days, just ridiculously kind of like yeah. filtered version of what the fifties have been like. Um, and I think because that was happening, there, there was a lot of that stuff being made. We, we thought um, uh, what, what's happening in Britain is that people remember that period. Uh, younger people remember that period or think of that period as like pre-internet, pre-social media. Um, uh, life was much simpler. Um, and of course, it, it didn't really feel like that at all. I mean, as soon as, as soon as Labour got into power, it had the war in Kosovo for a start. Um, so it's about, it's a, yeah, it's really about like remember, misremembering. Um, so it's kind of anti-nostalgia rather than, it's about, it's about nostalgia, but it's not nostalgic. Mm. Um and we used we used songs from that period because again a lot of the stuff that's being made online uh, it gets called lots of different things I suppose vaporwave is one name that it gets um, lumped in with but um, um, a lot of stuff being made is used referencing American eighties things and looping them and sampling them uh, so we thought well we should we should only use samples from the period we're we're thinking about which so, so all all the songs are British and they're all made in that time period. 97 to 2001 um and mess about with them filter them change them into something new and, and see what happens but i mean we really to be honest we really started doing it as a, not not a hobby but i think we didn't re- i certainly didn't think it was gonna be anything more than like a fan club record i don't wow. think it's gonna be our next album uh and it was martin kelly our manager we, we just played it to him <clears throat> he said well this really should be your next album because this is like quite different and interesting so I got him to thank for that. It's funny you mentioned Vaporwave. We had Mike Nesmith on the podcast. He's a massive fan of Vaporwave. He is, yeah. He's, uh, yeah, he's one of the few people on who seems uh, in music who ever seems to talk about it. It's, yeah. It's not it's how it's like, um, it says about, a lot about the modern world, I suppose, but, you know, like you, you can read about it on kind of like in like art blogs or whatever mm. um, or, um, or just online, but you, you don't... Um, you don't, uh, it hardly ever gets referenced by me in music yeah. at all, by journalists. It's really strange. And of course, it's, you know, it's all about music. But uh, yeah, that's great. He was talking about it. Now, now tell me about the, the samples. Um, I read somewhere, I'm not sure if this is accurate or not, you sampled some of your own records from back then too. Is that correct? Or was it all samples from other people's work? Uh, no, yeah, just the one, um, which was, it was nice and easy to clear anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Pete, Pete did that one um, on his own. Um, he's got a studio in in uh, Sussex, uh, so that was like that was inti- entirely his own work actually, because me, me and Sarah weren't involved in that at all. Um, yeah, just just the one track. So, w- what did you do? Did you sort of go mining through uh, ninety CDs looking for sounds, or were you pulling things from television shows? How did you did you how did you create the beds? Um, no, from, from 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 other people's records. Yeah, just mm. I mean like. Uh, you know the, the magic of Spotify. You can or whatever streaming. You can just uh, you don't have to find the records anymore. You can just like look them up online, and yeah. there they are. So uh, yeah, just went through stacks of um, uh, sort of like you know like mainstream stuff from that period. We didn't want to be too obscure because it would have kind of defeated the object a bit. It had, yeah. it had to feel like a recovered memory. So you can't really have a recovered memory of something that only ten people bought. Um, <laughs> they, were, they were they were nearly all like. Um, they weren't hit records, but they were by um, by people who'd had like top ten hits. And, and with like that, there and oh, Natalie and Brulia, you said. Mm-hmm. 
So, so yeah. Bob, I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners would be curious how that works when you're sampling. If it's uh, compl- changed so much it's unrecognisable, is that okay or do you have to give credit back to the, the source? Uh, oh, no, no, I mean, you should always give credit to the source. Um, that's, yeah, that's the ethical thing to do because yeah. you somebody else's work and, yeah. and playing. Um, I mean, if something is like really changed out of all uh, all recognition then um, beyond all recognition, then I guess uh, you don't have to. Uh, if no one's going to spot it, then no one's going to be offended or no one's going to think they've had their work yeah. borrowed. Um, I mean, if someone did it to us, then uh, I'd certainly expect them to get in touch. I yeah, guess. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, I, I mean, you know, there's – so some things are recognisable and some things are so distorted and changed, whether it be pitch shifting or whatever, it's hard to tell. So did you guys create the beds first and then write lyrics on top of them? How did that work for the songs? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's almost always what we do. We nearly always um, cover the backing track first and, and maybe just have a top line. Um, but the, the lyrics are almost always the last thing we do. All three of us um, leave that to the last. It's, it's very, very rare for us to write any kind of lyric and then write a song around it. Quite a, we'll, we'll quite often have a title that sort of triggers something, but um, yeah. no, the books are almost always last. So, yeah, they definitely were in this case. It's fascinating because uh, you've made the record in very much a COVID scenario where you've recorded in three different cities and you weren't uh, in the same room together. So was that obviously a case of sharing files and recording at home? Uh, yeah. Uh, like I said, Pete, Pete's got his own studio at home. Um, I was working with a guy called Gus Bowsfield in Bradford um, who's uh, in a band called Gurgles um, and he's, he's done loads of film and TV work. He's, um, he's, he's great and he's, uh, he's like a, a multi-instrumentalist which is, uh, I kind of need that because I'm a non-instrumentalist really. <laughs> Can't really sit down and play anything beyond chopsticks. So um, um, yeah, that, 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 was, that was great and that was, um, that was kind of, I wouldn't say it was out of necessity because I'd met Gus and we were going to do some work mm. together anyway. But um, uh, I think, to be honest, we we talked about doing this for a while, uh, and we did an EP that we we did give away at like a sort of Christmas party about three years ago of, of stuff in, stuff in a similar vein. Um, so we we wanted to do something like this, and there there wouldn't have been many times when we were all in the studio together, uh, apart from doing the vocals. So Sarah did the vocals at home with her son Sam, who's um, um, a very capable sound engineer now, which is useful. Um, but yeah, I think apart from that, we wouldn't have, we probably wouldn't have been in the studio together much anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of didn't really make that a huge amount of difference. I'd say. Well, when do you know these days when an album's finished, you get to a point where you sat back and looked at the eight tracks and went, there's an arc here, there's a story, that's the album? Yeah. I mean, we didn't record, we recorded initially very quickly. Um, which is always good not to put too much thought or too much pressure on yourself. So, I mean, the basic tracks were recording inside a month. Um, and then we you obviously spend like three months and tinkering with it <laughs> to sort of uh, get it sounding exactly like you want or sort of you worry about maybe that track's like 30 seconds too long or whatever. Um, and a couple of the songs, and they were like about eight minutes long originally, so they've really been cut back. But... Um, yeah, I mean the, the, the link, the link parts, um, which are all kind of like just found sounds of uh, like a squeaking gate by a stone circle, um, some lift machinery in a hotel in Cardiff that sounded peculiar. Um, these are just things that we'd like been 
sort of saving up over the last few years anyway and they just came into their own as like bits that sort of link the bits of music so uh but yeah that was that that um the arc sort of became apparent quite quickly i think or the running order yeah became apparent quite quickly and then and then we just spent a little bit of time tinkering afterwards yeah you know, I was going to ask you uh, how you were releasing. It was going to be CD, vinyl, whatever. But then I, I went to your shop and you've got very ornate packaging. You've gone right from the basic CD through to the box set. Yeah, well, something else that happened that was, was very fortunate was um, we were talking to a, a photographer called Alistair McClellan who uh, who does adverts, does Mark Jacobs adverts on TV um, and shoots for Vogue. He's like, you know, way out of our league really but he's um he's a fan of the group so we talked to him about whether he might want to do something and he said well I, you know i'd love to do a film for the whole album if that's possible and we were like that would be terrific so he's done that um and he works with these um designers in france called mm who again are very high-end and do whatever adele album covers and things wow. um so uh it was it was all done Mates' rates. We were we were very lucky. So it does look very ornate and um, and and high end, which obviously is absolutely fine by us. Um, so yeah, there's there's a box there's a box set that has the film and the double vinyl and stills from the film, film poster, signed photos of us. Uh, you know the sort of super deluxe yeah. thing that people people seem to like. I mean, I like I, I collect I collect those things by the people. So it's. Um, yeah, we've, I think we've, we've put a fair bit of thought into that. But it'll, it'll just be available on CD, and if you want to see the film, the CD comes with a multi-region DVD as well. So, uh, oh wow, it's, which is which is fairly cheap. You don't have to spend fifty quid to get the film. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious um, for you when you first got into music. What was the big bang for you? What was the sort of thing that rocked you back on your heels initially as a kid, and you thought, "I want to be part of this world." Oh. That's a really good question. Um, I think just, well, I mean, certainly as a kid, just watching Top of the Pops and thinking these people look like they're having a lot of fun. <laughs> so I definitely want to be part of that world. Um, actually making records, um, because I, I never learned to play an instrument, um, I n- never thought it was possible until sampling came along. And um, the record that really changed that was uh, Beat Disc by Bomb the Bass in 87 or 88. Um, and then thing from S Express. Just, you start getting these records coming out by people who were just using their record collections to make something new, um, which had been going on in America for a while with hip hop, obviously. But um, again, I didn't feel like you know I'd be legitimate in any way in that world. And it's only when people in London started doing it and having hits and making great records, I thought, oh, we could we could try that. So me and Pete had a couple of full starts, and I think the third time I went to the studio was we did only love can break your heart and. Mm. Uh, so we were sort of up and running there. It's interesting uh, with the songwriting. Uh, once you kind of, I guess, opened your ideas to sampling, it must have just come very naturally, I imagine. But it, in terms of your relationship with pop music, a lot of people sort of get to 25 and go, the best stuff was all done in the past. It's over my shoulder. They they live in that world. But it seems with you, maybe because you've worked as a writer as well, you always seem to be seeking out new pop music. Is that still the case in 2021? Um, I've got to say, it probably isn't. Um, not not seeking out. I mean, uh, there's 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 a, there's a lot of stuff here which I, which I really like, but it all seems to be quite. I think I'm um, <laughs> I'm of a generation where like you could you could read about the new records coming out every week, and uh, 
there was like a sort of a consensus on what was exciting and new to listen yeah. to, which isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, and obviously, people are younger than me can navigate all all the different ways of listening to music now. Um, but um, I, I kind of miss that sort of consensus thing of people getting excited about a new release. Obviously, it happens every so often, but uh, um, so no, I mean, I listen to. Um, WFM New 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 York that those have a lot of really interesting stuff, um, new records, uh, and and I like the fact that you know you can hear you can now hear something from whatever Columbia or somewhere which is um, brand new and exciting and a pop record with a great new singer, um, and that just wouldn't have been possible in the past because it would have taken so long for it to filter through. It would have just been sort of by luck. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the main one of the main reasons I, I haven't been is because I've, I've I've been writing books for the last sort of ten fifteen years, mm. which are mostly about old music. <laughs> so I have to <laughs> listen to I have to listen to a lot of old music uh, for work purposes. Um, so actually, like the, seeking out new stuff is not not something I really have time to do anymore. I just sort of stumble across it. Really, I wish I, I really wish I did have. I, I should dedicate more time to actually trying to find new records because there's so there's so many out there. When I hear them, it's always like, "Oh, I really should be trying harder." Yeah, it's it's. Um, I never, I've never seen a copy of it. Pop Avalanche is one of the great names of all time for a for a fanzine. Um, you obviously started writing about music before you were making music. Is that right? Yeah, um, I mean, I never thought I'd be able to make music. Um, so, and I've always been a fan of music writing, um, even though it obviously has a bit of an odd reputation. Yeah. Um, I, I loved, I loved. Um, I used to read all four like weeklies, Enemy, Manager Maker, Record Mirror and Sounds and Smash Hits, which is fortnightly. I used to read all of them when I was a teenager um, and I'd have my favourite writers. So, yeah, that was that was kind of what I aspired to, to be. Uh, started out doing fanzines. Me and Pete did a fanzine called CAF. Uh, the first one I ever did was yeah, Pop Avalanche with a couple of fr- other friends of mine. Um, and then uh, I got some work writing for NME and that was like, three years before the first Etienne record. Wow. So, yeah, it was kind of like a fairly established melody maker right by the time we started. So so what was the precedent there? Was it seeing somebody like Neil Tennant going, he's done that, I can do that? Or was it was there other people doing it? It's for, making that crossover? There was a lot of people trying to do it, but it's, uh, they didn't normally do very well. <laughs> I think the only ones, <laughs> Neil Tennant is uh, the only, because he was like editor of Smash Hits, it wasn't like he was a um, freelancer like me. He, was, he had a proper job. Um, so it's incredible that he did that. Uh, I mean, Chrissy Hind was a journalist oh, for a while. Yeah. Uh, but there's, yeah, not very many. And I could certainly, I'm not going to name names, but I certainly know people who were journalists and tried to make records and it didn't work out. And then it's, uh, you just go back to your day job. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. I, I, I suppose, I mean, I, I really never thought that anything was going to happen, but we, me and Pete were just, doing that for fun and we were lucky that uh well i suppose because i was a journalist i had a lot of contacts already with press offices or record labels yeah and i just played only look and break your heart to jeff barrett who um was uh, a press a press officer and put on gigs mostly at this point and we just played it to him see what he thought of it and he said well i'm starting a record label called heavenly can i put this out and we were like yes please <laughs> really had no idea that was going to happen um so yeah it was it was didn't have any expectations. I mean, Neil Tennant left his job as Smash Hits editor to go full time with the Pet Shop Boys, which the yeah, everyone of Smash Hits at the time was like really laughing at their sleeves. But um, 
it uh, that worked out. <laughs> he did. He, he drew away. Yeah, he had the last laugh. It, it's interesting, you know, where the period that the record harks back to, um, things like Mojo, Uncut, a Word magazine, they were all kind of really part of the culture. And, and I know over here in Australia, you'd buy them and obviously they reflected on what was happening at the time. And there's also a lot of nostalgia in them too, but you felt like it was part of the culture. Ma- magazines don't seem to have that cultural weight anymore. Do you, do you think that's the case? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's just there's just too much else going on. It's like, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of noise and I think... Um, uh, I wish there were like, like two or three places you could automatically go and, f- and find good music writing um, mm. and, and, you know, people whose opinions you trust. But of course, of course there are, I mean, like, you know, I look at stereo gum quite a lot. Mm. Uh, I've no idea if stereo gum's even that big a deal, but you know, they're good writers and they stay on top of like um, you know, new stories and um, who's got new records coming out and they write about it pretty well um, in the States. Um but you know, I, I, it still feels to me like there would there would be room for you know, maybe like a quarterly rather than a you know a monthly or a weekly. Yeah. Um, you know, fa- fashion deals with this without any problem. Um, yeah. Lots lots of different things do. I can't really see why there couldn't be a, a, a you know a nice high end quarterly music magazine. It's quite weird that no one's no one's tried it. Maybe they have and they've and it flopped horribly. I just didn't notice. <laughs> I hope not. But uh, you, you obviously still love the romance of paper. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, if you could see what this room looks like. It doesn't look very romantic, but it's full of paper. <laughs> look, I've got to I've got to bring it up. I've got it right here. The book. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. The story I know you it was two thousand thirteen it came out. I mean, the ambition to write this book is incredible, let alone pull it off. What was your um it must have been daunting going in writing the book. And what was your process when you were writing it? Um, well, my initial thought with that goes back a very long way, which was I read uh, a book by Nick Cohen called What Bop a Loo Bop, yeah. uh, which he wrote in 1969, which is about the, you know, the history of rock and roll up to that point. But it stopped <laughs> in 1969 because that's when he wrote it. Uh, and I read that in the late 80s. And I thought, God, I'd love to. I mean, he's such a good writer. I would love to read what he had to think about what the stuff going through the 70s, especially in the 80s. Um he wasn't interested in writing that, but I'd always had it in my head that that would be, that'd be a, a book, you know, no one's written it. Um, try and be quite pithy. Don't make it like an encyclopedia, be opinionated. Um, so that was really my blueprint. He's, he's one of my fa- absolute favorite writers. Um, so it kind of, for that reason, it always been in my head. I'd kind of been writing in my head for like 30 years. Um, and it's, but it still ended up taking me, I think, five, five or six years to, to write it. it. Took a long time. I, I can imagine. I mean, there's so much detail in there, and uh, you know, original thinking. Um, what was your working day like then? Were you sort of getting up early in the morning and just having to write X amount of words per day? How did it work? Um, I, I'd love to say I could do that, but because um, I know that's what a lot of writers do. But I, I, I just find that some days I can write a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the ABBA chapter in there. I, I sat down and wrote from start to finish. Without without pausing, I remember that that was a good day. Yeah, um, I used to go to the British Library and sit in the British Library um, and write, um, which you know a, a nice quiet place. And, there was a, and and just the local library was 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 good as well in in, in North London. Um, so yeah, and and but a lot of it, I kind of had a fair idea about already, and so I was like just sort of fact checking and stuff. But um, I've just written I've just written the prequel to it. Which was a lot more work. 
I'm not, I'm not going to do this again. That's my last big book. Is this too darn hot? Uh, yeah, it's actually going to be called uh, Let's Do It. Ah. Change the title. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a different title until the last minute as well. So, uh, well, What was the original title uh, for that? Uh, it was called Do You Believe in Magic for, for ah. ages, but it was, always, it was always a working title. I never, was never really that happy with it. Um, but yeah, Let's Do It. It's called Let's Do It, The Birth of Pop. And it's like from the first 78s and ragtime, the very beginning of like the music industry. Everything comes together very, very quickly in the 1890s before that it's like again it's like no real consensus um people don't go into the shops to buy the latest hit in any whether it's sheet music or in any form uh and just how recorded you know music being recorded just changed the way that everyone heard music or yeah. thought about music um and how that you know became industrialized very quickly and then you had all these new genres springing out of that um and i didn't i didn't have any any real idea of how it fitted together I, I, you know, obviously everyone knows a lot of Cole Porter songs or everyone knows has a vague idea about Louis Armstrong's backstory or whatever, but how these things link together and the chronology, I wasn't really sure about. And so I kind of set myself that target about 10 years ago. <laughs> just wow. Finally, it's being edited now. So wow. that'll be our Amazing. next ring. So, so I guess with Yeah, 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 it sounds like you've been accruing this knowledge since you were a, a kid. And then I guess it was a case of then listening to the records and fact-checking but it sounds like with the new book, you had to just go do all the research, right? Yeah, it was a lot more research. I had to read a lot more books and um, talk to a lot more enthusiasts. Um, but uh, yeah, there was, there was, there was, there was you know, the, what's, what's come out of it? I, I love Duke Ellington. I didn't know I loved Duke Ellington before. It was, mm. I, I wanted to find out more about music from that period. And um, yeah, um, that it felt like a way of doing it and, and sort of getting paid. <laughs> it took so long. It's like... <laughs> a lot less than minimum wage but um uh yeah just 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 because that's something that I'd, I'd, I'd never really understood how it fitted together and obviously that does feed into pop music as we know it uh very heavily um whether it's music hall which had a big influence on i don't know a lot of my favorite people like that, the kinks or yeah squeeze or whatever um where harmonies come from from the you know, for the beach boys you know going back to like the, the mills brothers i love the bgs never massively influenced by the mills brothers uh, you know, so like, I, I wanted to go back and uh, rather than just thinking everything starts in 1955 mm. uh, and, and, and see how it all slotted together and where it all came from. And of course, you could go back further, but um, I might go mad if I do that. <laughs> that Beaches documentary is fantastic, isn't it? The new one. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting how I think that, yeah, that is that's very, very much the, the, the American take on their story because it basically ends with Saturday Night Fever and, and the backlash as if they did nothing afterwards. And um, certainly in Britain, I mean, there was still, there was, yeah, there was a this sort of fallow period where there was writing for other people, but, you know, then You Win Again was like a number one. They had hits right the way through the 90s. And um, they were, yeah, they were kind of always around, always present. But, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I love the Bee Gees. I'm still trying to find some of their Australian singles. Um, I ask a lot of writers this question. Um, when you're writing these days, is it a laptop? Is it a desktop? Is it a typewriter? Do, are you connected to Wi-Fi? What's your space like when you're writing? Yeah, it's just a laptop. I, I, I sort of take it. Um, I mean, obviously, during lockdown, I was, I was stuck at home, but I like going out to cafes or, or anywhere, really, just uh, um, uh, sitting outdoors, sitting in a park sometimes uh, if it's a nice day. Uh, sitting in the yard out the back of our house. Um, 
yeah, with with a with a desktop, I think that'd be a bit, feel a bit more like going to the office. But I, I, like, <laughs> I, like, I, like feel, I like to feel I can just like write wherever wherever I feel like writing. That's the rock and roll dream, right? And and, and what about yeah. the songs uh, f- for the new record? I mean, were they some things that uh, you you laboured on lyrics for weeks or months, or they come very quickly? Um, they, they were all Sarah's. The lyrics were all Sarah's on this. Uh, ah. We kind of had an idea of uh, we talked about what we thought they should be. Um, so I think they're all sort of like taken from. Uh, I don't actually know. I don't want to ask because it might have spoiled the <laughs> spoiled the magic a little bit. Um, I think they've all been taken from like magazines or. Um, I don't know where she's gone from 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 that time period. Yeah, from the period, right? So she's been reading the face and getting inspired. Yeah, quite possibly. I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I haven't asked her. I, I didn't. I didn't really want to know. Um, so yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. You mentioned ABBA briefly before, and you wrote about them beautifully in the book. They've got five new songs coming out. How do you feel about that? Um, I don't know until I hear them, really. It's kind of like, I can't imagine what their voices are going to sound like now. I think everyone's kind of assuming you're going to hear the ABBA harmonies, and mm. you're probably not, I guess, because um, their voices would have changed so much. Um, I mean, yeah, they're, 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 they're you know, Amazing singers and songwriters, so it's uh, of course I want to hear something new by them. Uh, and it's it's a it's a shame I haven't done more in the years in between. You know, it's yeah. been a, a very very long time. I know I sort of can't help but think that uh, people that write like they did, they've had forty years to come up with something. I'm really hoping it's great. It it hard not to be really. I mean, sure they had so many good ideas since now and then. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like. Uh, Agnetta and Frieda have both made um, some pretty good solo records. Mm. It's, um, they just don't tend to get talked about very much. It's um, um, yeah, it was Ag- Agnetta's. I can't think what it was. It was pretty in the two thousands. Now it's probably not even that recent. But she did a version of uh, "If I Thought You'd Ever Change Your Mind." That was really beautiful. That was lovely. Um, uh, yeah, it's just, I think it's just like because it doesn't have the, the Abba name attached, people haven't paid so much attention. It feels like they've done absolutely nothing since nineteen eighty two, which is yeah. really true. Yeah, and uh, you've been doing a lot of uh, compilation records for Ace. Um, I sort of knew Ace from doing uh, sort of rock and roll stuff, blues stuff. Uh, that They had a bit of a presence in Australia probably about oh, 25 years ago, and they did a lot of compilations. Uh, it, what's, I know you've done one for 1976. What's your brief when you do compilations these days? Uh, it's really... The way the way I think of compilations is just the way I always have done from like making tapes for friends. It's just like to come up with an idea, um, uh, like a sort of an, an overriding idea, and then just uh, thinking of the music that fits that. Um, so it could be it could be stuff that was hits. It could be stuff that was very obscure. Um, the nineteen seventy six one was just I don't know. It's like in Australia, but it was like an incredibly hot summer here. Like, and even though we've we've had hotter summers, but everyone just remembers that as being like an unbearably hot, relentless summer. Um, so I just wanted to do a compilation of how how that how it felt that summer, rather than yeah. just like big records. So most of the songs are from 1976, obviously, but uh, or, or slightly earlier, nothing later. Uh, but it's kind of like that sort of woozy, um, very sort of sleepy, um, but also quite glossy mid 70s productions. Um, that was that was my, that was my thinking there. So and that, that, yeah, it's not like. Just doing someone's greatest hits or yeah. whatever, or complete home and B sides or whatever. Um, but um, no, I, I used to have been very, very kind. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think of doing like a sort of rock and roll or 
R and B compilations for them because they, 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 you know, they're the people who've been doing it since I was a teenager, and yeah, I re- really admire a lot of the people there. Um, yeah, they used to run the record shops. I bought a lot of records from. They're they're, they're an amazing group of blokes, primarily. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's it's very. I'm very privileged to be able to do stuff for them, and it's um, it seems to be selling okay. So they they kind of give me free reign now. I think in the first first case, they were a bit didn't really understand what, 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 what I think I didn't really think it was like maybe the right label or stuff my own imprint under ace or something like that but um yeah ace to me is like a, a very very important reissue label you know maybe the the most in in the world so um it's uh that's great to have that chance so your album's coming out in September the new book's on its way what's next um well, I'm writing a book on the Bee Gees um, oh well hopefully be out next christmas i think uh you know late in 18 months time um um as for writing music uh i don't know we we we've kind of we've been writing stuff to, more stuff together which is uh, a bit more obviously song based um we're not sure where that's going to go I was maybe thinking of like working with a producer um so we've been talking about that um yeah yeah just uh more of the same as well more ace compilations i've got about three of them lined up at the moment um me and, me, me and pete have done one that's all like 1990 uh kind of uh mid-tempo or down-tempo stuff like uh yeah as much like what we did when we, came, we first came out um that'll be out next spring i think you know, where I am now, it's not too far from where the Bee Gees lived um, when they were here in, in Australia. Uh, be curious to know how big a, a part of your book you've you've focused on Redcliffe in those years. Um, quite a lot, actually. Um, yeah, because I, I find I find it really I find it ama- amazing and slightly odd that they seem to move every six months. Even in Australia, they move all the time. Yeah. They're never settled in one place, and it's like you know, so so many different places claim them as like, yeah, well, they're from they're obviously from here. I know, I know, um, Australia does, uh, obviously, Manchester does, and the Isle of Man does, yeah, and probably my does as well now, I guess. Um, yes, of course, uh, yeah, and 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 you know, and um, the Gibbs parents lived in Ibiza for a while in the 70s, so I think, <laughs> and Andy, Andy did his first shows in Ibiza just singing in bars. Um, it's uh, yeah, they really they really move around a lot, and to keep the family tight as well, because they they tend to move on mass, and they you know, well, obviously there's not that many of them left now, but um, they're all living very close to each other in Miami. Um, what well, yeah, while while they're all still alive, it's um, it's amazing. It's like a very they're a very they're a very unique family. They're very interesting. Well, it's funny. I saw an interview with Barry recently, and he said he thinks of the whole family as the Bee Gees. Not just yeah, the really makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, even the sister Leslie, I think, was like they, they thought of when, when Rob, Robin briefly quit in 1969, and I think they were thinking of Leslie as a possible replacement. Wow, and she did like one show in London, um, no, no, no recording of it, sadly, but um, yeah, I mean, so and and Andy, I guess, could have joined at some point. He was maybe he was always just slightly too young, but I think they were thinking of, yeah, getting him to join the group just before he died um so uh, yeah i mean that those 60s uh, singles particularly that they wrote i mean they occupy the same rarefied air as the best mccartney and lennon songs don't they 
Yeah, absolutely. They're, 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 in, they're incredible songwriters. And I was so young. Uh, it's like I can't see nobody. Robin wrote, and he was like 17. And it's just, it's insane. Or, or to love somebody, you know, like, yeah. which basically Barry's song. He was, he was only like, I think 19 when he wrote that. You think what a standard that is now. It's incredible. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think those, the, the, the first four albums, the 60s albums, uh, are all incredible records. There's loads of like really good album tracks in there as well as some hits. I've sort of been obsessed lately with Warm Right. Um, the song, yeah, that, that's a great track. I mean, I, I don't know why they didn't include it on their record. I, I think Graham Bonnet had a big hit with it here, but there's Andy Gibb did a version, they did a version. It's just a killer, killer track. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's um, something, you know, this kind of thing I do in my brain when I should be probably thinking about something more important, but what, what the album would have been if they just, because the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, they just started recording a new album in France and then Robert Stigwood said, oh, I need some songs for this film I'm making. Have you got anything? We go, they're like, well, we've got these five songs we've just written for a new album. And it was like, Staying Alive, Night Fever, More Than A Woman, If I Can't Have You. Uh and how deep is your love? <laughs> so it's like that. That would have. That's like that was, Those are the songs they'd already written for their new album. Amazing. Warm Ride was another one. Um, that was the one that just got cast aside for some reason. Um, but they'd just been left to write another four or five songs oh. for that album. How that would literally be the greatest record ever made by anybody. Yeah. Um, quite possibly. I mean, certainly in my opinion. Yeah. Um, incredibly solid. But yeah, because it got so it ended up being on this multi-million selling soundtrack anyway. But it's not. That's not really a Bee Gees record, um, but yeah, I wonder what it would have what it would have been like um, if they had that chance. Just another yeah. couple of weeks. Yeah, it's kind of a delicious thought, isn't it? To think, you know, what would those ten tracks have been? It would, as you said, it would have been one of the greatest records of all time. Yeah, well, I mean, they, it feels like they should be getting talked about in the greatest records of all time, anyway, because people, hmm. everyone loves the singles. But you know, an album like Main Course. It's like, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that is an amazing record. Um, but they do, yeah, I think it's just because there's there's something that's always slightly uncool about them um, for whatever reason. They never really pulled the right moves. They never tried to be cool. They always just thought of themselves as singers and songwriters and yeah. goofed around quite a lot. And I think that's kind of like, it's, it's sad, but you know, their, their legacy maybe isn't as strong as it should be because of that. Um, people like it when people don't smile at the camera, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, there's an Australian guy called Johnny Young that went to England in the 60s and uh, knew Barry, and Barry gave him a lecture on how to write a hit song, and Johnny Young came back to Australia and wrote three classic songs. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if you know that song, The Real Thing, which was a big hit here by Russell Morris. Russell Morris. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he wrote Amazing. that. He wrote that. Yeah, Johnny Young wrote that. And uh, there was a couple others he wrote too. I think one called Smiley about the Vietnam War and another one. And it was just, he got this brief from Barry on what to do, came back to Australia, wrote these masterpieces. It's <laughs> incredible. I had no idea. Well, thanks for that. That's, that's definitely not in the book, but it will be now. <laughs> All right. Good on you. Hey, Bob, it was great to chat to you. Congratulations on the record. Cheers. Thanks. Yeah, no, nice to talk to you too. That was fun. Uh, big thanks to Bob Stanley for joining me on Time to Talk today. I'd like to thank Jason at Record Works Studio for his post-production work on this episode and Liz Ansley for organising the chat. St Etienne's I've Been Trying to Tell You is out now, but check out their site for the various formats you can find it on. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a good rating on whatever platform you're using, and we'll see you back here again very soon with another episode of Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. Thanks for joining us. Music